Welcome to the Legally Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Alexandra Shapiro. Alexandra is the author of Presumed Guilty, a novel about white-collar prosecution that was published in March 2022. Alexandra is a former federal prosecutor with 30 years experience and has argued in the US Supreme Court. She has served as the president of the New York Council of Defense Lawyers, in addition to handling many high-profile cases. And in 2009, Alexandra co-founded the prominent New York litigation beauty Shapiro Arato Bok LLP. So a very, very warm welcome, Alexandra. Thanks, Rob. It's great to see you. And thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. And before we dive into all your amazing projects and experiences, we have a customary icebreaker question here on the Legally Speaking podcast, which is on the scale of one to 10, 10 being very real, what would you rate the hit TV series Suits in terms of its reality? You know, oh, I'm actually, I've never seen Suits. Believe it or not. Well, based on that, we'll give it a zero and we'll move swiftly on because it's hard to comment. You need to give me a zero on, in terms of popular culture. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's move on to all about you because that's what today's about. So let's, would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about your background and your career journey? Sure. So I graduated from law school in the early 1990s and started my career uh, clerking for two federal judges in the U.S., uh, the second of which was Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg on her first year on the Supreme Court. And then I was a federal uh, prosecutor for five years here in Manhattan. And then uh, I was at a large international law firm, Latham & Watkins, for about nine years and then started my own firm with some other partners in 2009. And since then, I've been uh, working at this boutique firm. Um, I do mostly uh, white collar criminal defense appeals and some complex civil litigation. Yeah, and you do some tremendous work and uh, the work that your firm's done is incredible. But you have been working on a fairly new project, publishing a novel. So would you mind telling us a little bit more? Sure. So uh, in early 2021, uh, kind of in the height of the pandemic, I decided to write a book. And I was originally thinking about writing a nonfiction book about one of my cases that I felt had a very unjust result. But it was a very complicated case. And uh, I got the idea after talking to someone with a lot of experience in publishing of writing a novel. And so I decided instead to write legal thriller about a white collar prosecution and that that kind of lends itself to my next question in terms of you know what were those motivations behind writing presumed guilty did you want to sort of expand on that a little bit more yes so um so having done criminal defense work for really the past 20 years um i've seen a lot of unfair aspects of the criminal justice system in the united states uh it's one of the best in the world but often the results are seem unfair uh, to the people involved. Um, sometimes even innocent people can be prosecuted. Um, and I've had a lot of success, fortunately, particularly in my appellate work, overturning unfair results. But sometimes an injustice sticks. And uh, I wanted to raise awareness about that. And I thought 
I had a particular case that inspired the book, as I mentioned, um, and it still keeps me up at night. The client is still in prison. I hope he will be getting out soon. But he uh, is a banker who essentially was doing his job and got accused of uh, federal fraud. And I believe that what he did under any interpretation of the evidence just isn't fraud and that he was just doing something that was typical in the industry. And I think that kind of thing can happen. And uh, so that, that really, I want, that was really what inspired the idea of writing the book to call attention to some of these issues. Yeah, and it, it, it's so good that you've obviously had that experience because the, the book is absolutely fantastic. Would you agree your own experiences as a federal prosecutor then really inspired you to, to sort of create this novel? Yeah, uh, on, on both sides, both as a prosecutor and a defense lawyer, I, I, I wanted to show people, I think people have certain ideas based on, you know, television dramas and, and other uh, other things they read in the media about how the system works and often don't understand the ways in which it can be very difficult and challenging uh, for people targeted by prosecutors until they personally experience it. So my idea was to try to, through a fictional story, illustrate some of the kinds of things that can really happen. And, you know, the dialogue is sort of the type of dialogue that occurs between prosecutors and witnesses, between defense lawyers and their clients and sort of judges and lawyers and uh, so forth in court. And that, that was the idea behind it. Yeah, and, and, and fascinating. And you, you touched on before in the novel that you sort of mentioned a, a sort of previous case, if, if you wish, and, you know, the book details a little bit around that. But, you know, and it discusses a lot around white collar crime. But for those perhaps less familiar, what is white collar crime and why did you choose to focus on this? And do you think it's becoming an even more prevalent issue? Yeah, so um, I think the term white collar crime is a broad one, but we generally think of it as applying to kind of business crimes and crimes that involve um, not are not violent crimes. Uh, you know, things like fraud, political corruption, etc. And um, part of the reason I chose white collar crime is because I've done a lot of work in that area. I've also um, on a pro bono basis, defended a lot of indigent people as well. And, and some of those cases are more traditional, you know, drug crimes, gun crimes, that sort of thing. Um, but I felt that, uh, that I could show by picking um, a white collar crime and a defendant who's, you know, a person with resources and access to the best lawyers in the world, I could show people that even when you have all these resources, uh, there can be a tremendous amount of unfairness and it doesn't, you know, guarantee a just result. And if that's the case, imagine how much worse it is for ordinary people and poor people who do not have access to any resources to really mount a, a big fight against prosecutors pursuing an unjust cause. Yeah, and again, it's, it's it's fantastic the work that you have done, and I know the tremendous amount of effort to to, to produce the the novel. And with that, you know, what message would you like the the novel to convey? And more interestingly, is there particular reasons? I know you've touched on it. Why you chose the fictitious narrative? Well, I thought it would be easier to appeal to a broad range of people and to create. A story that was a little bit simpler than uh, many white collar crimes, not all, but but some of them are quite complicated and 
you know, for instance, the the case I alluded to involved a complex foreign exchange transaction. And to understand the details, uh, it you just get down in the weeds of minutia about how this particular industry works. And I wanted to appeal to a much broader audience. So, and and um, one other thing that I did. So I thought, and and fiction gives you you know creative license, and you can kind of. Uh, make up a lot of things and let the story take you know you where where you want to go and so it just it was a more flexible medium and I also frankly have always secretly entertained the idea of writing fiction and so it seemed like a good opportunity to try to see if I could do that and um, and and I like legal thrillers I like true crime novels as well, but this just seemed to give me the most creative license. Yeah, and I love that. I can just hear the sort of creativity and passion in your in your voice and, and why you wanted to sort of make this this to come through there, which is which is lovely. And, you know, the novel gives an insight into, you know, how federal prosecutions conduct their work. So, you know, do you believe there is need for reform? Uh, indeed, I do. Um, I think on a number of levels, I mean, some some issues are just systematic uh, and uh, there should, you know, should be addressed. Um, I think part of some of the problems are just endemic to human society and, and things like confirmation bias. And I think prosecutors, like any other human beings, you know, they form an opinion about something. And sometimes when they're conducting an investigation, which really should be objective and trying to learn the facts, sometimes if they form an opinion early, it it can be the investigation can shape itself in a way where they're just really trying to confirm the original opinion. So there are things like that that are kind of more difficult to solve through, you know, political reforms or anything like that. But uh, there are other issues that can be addressed through policy reforms. And I can, you know, give you just a few examples if you want. Yeah, please feel free to, to sort of elaborate on that. Yeah, so so three that I've thought of in particular and that, you know, um, include, and these are not, you know, novel or, or uh, brilliant new ideas. I think people have been talking about some of them for a while. But one is uh, there's a doctrine called Brady, which basically is a basic requirement in America that prosecutors who have exculpatory information or information that may tend to suggest a person is innocent have to disclose it if they have prosecuted brought a prosecution and um, it is quite notorious. There have been many uh, instances that have been revealed in recent years of violations of this doctrine. And it's so I think one area is there should be reforms there to have more airtight requirements about when uh, prosecutors must disclose and, and to require greater disclosure and more open discovery so that defendants and their lawyers get access to any information the prosecution has that may be helpful to their defense earlier. And often these things don't come to light until after you know somebody's been convicted or something and it's too late to really do much about it. That's one. Um, another one which is outside the white collar area but has been talked about a lot in in, in America, and I, I think is very important, is there is to deal with police misconduct and police brutality, and the use of excessive force is uh, that it's very difficult to sue uh, to sue officers when this happens because of this doctrine called qualified immunity, which protects mm. 
uh, officers against lawsuits um, for the use of excessive force and other violations of other constitutional rights. And uh, I think that that doctrine should be abolished or very severely cut back uh, to create a greater deterrent uh, to, to officers from use of excessive force. And then the third thing is uh, a little more arcane, but uh, has to do with an appellate doctrine called harmless error. So uh, uh, appellate courts often will say, well, this piece of evidence shouldn't have come in or the judge unfairly let it, you know, didn't allow the defense to present certain evidence, but you know, no harm, no foul. And they, they invoke this doctrine of harmless error in which the appellate court just sort of makes its own determination that supposedly this wouldn't have mattered to the jury and it gets abused and uh, used too often and it excuses too many unfairnesses in trials. So those are just a few things that I've thought about and, um, and as ways to make the system fairer. Yeah, no, and it's such great points and, and insights. So thank you for, for that. And and so I guess without reform then, do you believe anyone is disadvantaged by the structure of the criminal justice system? Well, I, I, yes. I, I mean, I think there are just many rules that are um, just structured in a way that, uh, that favor the prosecution. And, you know, some of them probably there are good reasons underlying it, but you know, there are many other rules besides the ones I mentioned. So, for instance, the way the rules of evidence work, um, hearsay, meaning, you know, uh, a situation where people are reporting things that were told to them outside court, is uh, is not allowed, but there are many exceptions. And in general, the exceptions allow the prosecutors to use a lot of hearsay, but make it very, very difficult for the defendant to use hearsay. There's, so there are a lot of things like that that are sort of, uh, unfair, where the rules are structured in such a way that it makes it uh, very challenging for the defense. Also, unlike in civil litigation in the United States, where there's a lot of discovery on both sides, you take depositions, uh, you don't have anything like that in the criminal case, but the government, which has conducted the investigation and had all these tools like investigative tools, legal tools, subpoena power, grand jury, able to use the grand jury. The government has all this information. And so there's sort of a, an information imbalance endemic to the way the criminal justice system works. It's very different from civil cases. And some of that, you know, has to be the way it is because there are reasons that, uh, you know, government investigations, a lot of what's, what's being done needs to be kept secret. But there are ways, you know, it creates an information imbalance that can be very unfair. And there are possibilities for tweaking that as well in ways that can give defendants, uh, you know, better ability to defend themselves if, if they're contesting a, a case. Yeah, no, and really well said. Once again, it, it is fascinating. And, and you touched on this before as well. In America, the harmless error doctrine, where it allows judges to be excused after making an error in their ruling. And you explained about that. And, you know, how, how could, you know, what would be some of the practical t steps that would needed to be taken to potentially make that change or make something change around that? Well, there's a couple of different ways it could happen. I mean, one is that and this is very difficult, as you, as, as you well know, you know, would be a legislative reform. But, uh, but the do doctrine is also, you know, subject, the rules around it are interpreted by courts and different, for instance, different courts apply it slightly differently. And so, you know, maybe if the right case comes along, 
the United States Supreme Court could take up how it gets applied and give it a little more teeth. That's that's one possibility. But um, but you know, legislative reform is probably I, the the ideal way to change it. But it's just so difficult to get anything like that done. So I think you know, in the short term, it's you know working through the courts to try to create reforms is the best the best way to do it. Yeah, no, and again, I think it's uh, it's all a process, and I think it's great that you have taken the time to produce this novel and, and really highlighted so many important points. Time for a quick break from the show. Are you a legal aid practitioner in England and Wales, specialising in civil or criminal legal aid matters? If you are, this message is for you. As a legal aid solicitor, you don't have time to waste on legal aid case management software that doesn't work to your needs. That's why Clio has developed a quicker, more accurate and affordable solution for legal aid solicitors in England and Wales. It could save you hours in your month, particularly when it comes to end of month invoicing and claims to the legal aid agency. To see how it all works, visit clio.com forward slash UK forward slash legal aid. That's Clio, C-L-I-O dot com forward slash UK forward slash legal aid. Now back to the show. So I guess another question I have for you is, you know, as a formal federal prosecutor yourself, um, do you think prosecutors owe a duty to defendants? And do you feel there is significant need for improvement regarding the Brady violation? Yes, I do. I mean, and and just to be fair, I mean, I don't. I'm not suggesting that there's a lot of rampant, deliberate uh, violation, but I think uh, part of the reason for this problem, this problem getting worse and worse, is that is big data, and that you know, when I was a prosecutor, even in the '90s, uh, we had computers, we had email, but a lot more evidence was paper-based, and there weren't. People weren't using email to quite the extent. We didn't have smartphones. We didn't have, you know, um, but now in even in a simple case, whether it's white collar or, or any other kind of criminal case, there's just tons and tons of data. Um, and I think it's almost too much for the prosecutors to even know everything that they have. And so that part of the problem is really uh, that systems need to be developed to manage the data better so that uh, in- key information is getting pushed out to the defense lawyers. I mean, you can't just dump everything on them and expect people to find, you know, whatever's in there. So so that I think that's a big problem is, is trying to figure out ways for prosecutors' offices to develop systems to better handle, manage, and um, understand what's in all the data that they have gathered during the course of their investigation. Um, And I think if that happened, maybe, you know, that would also help cut down on the instances in which uh, somebody wrongfully gets prosecuted uh, as well. Yeah, no, and we definitely are all for that, of of course. And again, you briefly touched on it before, but I know in the UK and the US and other parts of the world, police officers are an active part of the justice system. They can often qualify for immunity during trials, providing them with that shield of protection you're alluding to. So, you know, what are your further thoughts on on this? Yeah, I think that's that's a big uh, issue. And there's 
a lot more movement for reform in that area in the United States, particularly since the Black Lives Matter. I mean, it's still, I think, you know, getting a national reform on the federal level is still a ways away. Um, but we see at some state and local governments are starting to make changes in in policy on, in that regard. But I think we really need um, a national change. Uh, you know, ideally it would come in the form of legislation. However, the immunity doctrines that we have in the United States actually are, were originally just made up by courts. And so, um, so there's also the possibility of change through really, we would need the U.S. Supreme Court uh, to take a major case and make a major change in the doctrine. But I think, you know, Congress could fix it as well. It's just so difficult now uh, anything the least bit controversial to to get changed on, but we really need it done on the national level. I think for it to be meaningful across the United States, yeah. and I'm sure the same is true of of UK. Yeah, absolutely. I think the more the more exposure behind it, the the better naturally. Um, I mean, you've achieved and, and done so much, Alexandra. What what do you think are some of the key skills you need to be a great lawyer specifically in the circles that you've been within white collar crime and then as an extension of that maybe a new newer skills a fiction author right so in some ways some of the skills do overlap believe it or not but i would say starting with uh you know be, being a lawyer i think uh you know one of the one of the key skills is is you have to be able to persuade other people of your position obviously and as a, particularly as a litigator which is sort of my focus and that can involve oral persuasion. It can also involve written persuasion. Often, you know, cases really get decided on the briefs. And I think over the years, I've developed that skill quite a bit. And uh, I think that, you know, in turn, in some ways translates to the fiction writing, not because, um, you know, fiction, it's a different type of writing, obviously. Uh, brief writing is analytical writing. Um, you know, you have a thesis, you develop it, but in terms of, um, you, you still have to tell a story, I always feel, in a brief, um, because the first, your first job is to kind of hook the reader, get the reader interested, and I do a lot of repellent work, and I, I try to really hope that I've persuaded the, the reader by the time, really, they've read the end of my introduction or my background section that something, they need to do something about the story I'm telling, and then I get to the legal arguments. And it and fiction writing, you know, obviously you're telling a story, and and it, you, you're you're facing some of the same challenges. How do you keep the reader interested in the story, and um, you know how evocative can the writing be? And and I've always um, so when I when I was writing my novel, I really try to when I'm describing the scenes, I try to paint a picture so the reader has a picture in their head, not just. Um, you know, not just that they're hearing the dialogue, there's a lot of dialogue in the book, which I think is an effective way to tell the story, but um, but I also try to really give people a, a sense of the place and what the people look like and that sort of thing. Yeah, and I, I love that you, you talked a little bit there about sort of those persuasive skills because, you know, as, um, you know, you've won, you know, appellate uh, reversals of criminal convictions, which is amazing on a number of notable white collar crime uh, prosecutions. Is there anything else that you would say that has sort of, you know, you've built up over the years or experienced that has helped you to sort of, you know, win those particular cases? Yeah, I mean, I, I think... Um 
the more cases you work on, you know, over time, you really start to develop a feel for what are the type of mistakes that stand out. You know, every, every trial judge, no matter how good they are, there might be some mistakes in the trial. But the question is, which are the ones that matter? Which are the ones that seem like they affected the outcome? They created an unfairness. Uh, and I think you develop uh, a sense over time handling more and more cases of, you know, what might grab um, an appellate court's attention, what might strike them as unfair. Um, and so, you know, I always tell prospective clients, I typically read the entire transcript myself, even though I work with teams of other lawyers. And I think the more experienced the person is, the easier it is going to be for them to spot the issues, which is like one of the most important parts of winning in a, a criminal appeal is what are the be- figuring out what are the best issues to bring to the appellate court's attention. Yeah, no, and again, it's it's fascinating stuff. I love this area of work and, and what you do. And I guess moving to maybe more of your entrepreneurial hat now as well, what advice would you give to people looking to start their own law firm? And any advice about co-founding as well, because with different people and personalities and everything else that goes with that. So yeah, what advice would you give to people who might be thinking about starting a firm and also co-founding? Yeah, well, I, th- I think it's a great thing to do. And I think... A couple of points I would make. One is it's easiest to do it and do it well if you spend at least a little bit of time at a larger institution, at least in my experience, because I picked up a lot of uh, tips about how to run a business, about the business of law from working at a larger institution. Um, so, And also, you it's hard to start your own firm Uh, very early in your career, although some people do it successfully because you need to really develop a network of potential referrals. A lot of my referrals, even to this day, come from other lawyers, whether they're lawyers, you know, who tried a case and the client is looking or they're advising the client to to get a fresh set of eyes on the appeal or, um, you know, a friend is contacted, has a conflict, whatever it is. Um, and so you want to have a good network of people, even if you haven't been developed, you know, had your own business before. If you have a good network of people, when you start your own firm, you know, let people know what you've done. Go out to lunch with people. Just let people know, hey, I've hung out a shingle. I'm here. This is the kind of work I can do. And you'll start getting calls. And, um, and so I, I encourage you. You have to be someone who's willing to take a risk and someone who understands that, you know, uh, the phone might not ring all the time at the beginning. You have to be willing, you know, to take a little bit of risk. But I think if you are confident in your skills and you have a good network, um, you can make it happen. Yeah, and I love that mindset as as well. And anything from just sort of relationships perspective of obviously, you know, you have multiple, you know, you've co-founded a firm. Anything you would say with regards to sort of managing and maintaining, you know, crucial relationships within firm leadership? Yeah, so, and, and uh, I think that if you're going to found a firm with, with other people, you know, you have to be careful about who you choose and, and think about not just, you know, is this person my friend, because that doesn't always work out so well, but more uh, what, what type of law practice does this person have? Does it complement what I'm doing? And personality-wise, you know, does this seem like someone who's a practical person, someone who whose personality kind of meshes and has a similar approach to what they want to do with the firm, what they want to do with their law practice, you know, 
what what are we looking for in terms of hiring associates you know those kinds of things and just the overall you know sense of of uh, style I guess management style so you know some people one of the things I liked about leaving a large firm was large firms understandably and necessarily have lots of bureaucracy and committees and um, you know I I'm not one of the things that was liberating about a smaller firm was was to have not to have that anymore and really to be able to um, make decisions you know with other partners but a much smaller number of people so there's more flexibility about rates things like that but you need to make sure you know that's another thing that you're on the same page about you know what your rate structures are going to be and you know how you're going to handle certain types of opportunities you know because there's some cases you know you might not want to take for various different reasons and you just so you need to have a good sense that you're going to be on the same page about those things. Yeah, such, such sage advice. And as you have throughout the whole podcast today, um, Alexandra. So I guess finally, if our listeners would like to learn more about your novel, Presumed Guilty, where can they find out more and potentially make a purchase? Yeah. So I have a website, www.alexandrashapiro.com. Uh, and there's uh, a link to the Amazon page where you can buy it there and lots of information about the book and the story, uh, which by the way, I should just mention a little bit more. It tells the story of a woman named Emma Simpson, who is uh, a hedge fund manager in New York and uh, federal prosecutors are looking at the hedge fund. They believe it may have engaged in insider trading. And then essentially when they can't make that case, they end up prosecuting her for obstruction of justice instead. Um, and it tells kind of the story of what happens with that and its effect on her family and so on and so forth. I don't want to give away the plot. Uh, but um, I am also on both Twitter and Instagram at Alex underscore S underscore author. And I'm on LinkedIn uh, under my name, Alexandra Shapiro. So uh, I, uh, but uh Hopefully, uh, some of the listeners will be interested. And also, I should just mention that until April 24th, the ebook version is on a special of 99 cents, uh, and the book is also available in paperback. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much, Alexandra, for being with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show and everything you've achieved and some of the amazing work you've done throughout your career to date. So wishing you lots of continued success with your firm, your career, and of course, the book. But from all of us for now, from the Legally Speaking podcast, over and out. This week's review comes from Beth Zhang. Super useful and easy to listen to. Five stars. Really enjoyed this podcast. Such amazing insights and advice. Beth, thank you so much for your lovely, kind words. From all of us on the Legally Speaking podcast, thanks a million.